1: Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network.
2: Hello, welcome to The Hash. It's Thursday or Friday Light, as we like to call it here on The Hash. I'm Will Foxley. I'm joined today by Adam B. Levine, Sundali Halagama, and Christy Harkin over in our tech corner Looks like you're on the road today, Chrissy. What you up to?
1: Yeah, I am in Montreal in La Belle Provence of Quebec.
2: There we go. Nice. There we go. I'm actually kicking it off with the first story of the day. Talking about GDP and inflation concerns, is it a recession or is it not? We'll have to go around the horn on that one. Looks like U.S. GDP growth for this last quarter came in little under the weather, down 0.9%. It's the technical definition for a recession with two different quarters being negative GDP growth. The White House and other officials in the U.S. government are saying, well, there's some other indicators that lead us to believe that we are not in recession, including a very strong labor market. This comes, of course, after yesterday's 75 basis point increase, at the federal funds rate to combat inflation. Inflation is still hovering around 9% according to last month's figures. Sundali, I want to throw this one over to you, get your take on it. This is a pretty divisive moment, especially with midterm elections coming up in the United States. So it's November, pretty soon here. And I think a lot of people are looking at the administration. They're saying they're trying to hedge anything that's going to happen in November, protect themselves from possible election fallout. But for the regular U.S. consumer, they're still looking at inflation and now a possible recession and just getting smacked both ways.
3: Exactly. Smacked both ways. Sounds about right. Through all of this, you know, what I was thinking about is how is all this going to impact crypto? And once we, you know, all agree whether this is a recession or not, since it's been brought up and we're all, as you said, feeling the effects of a bad economy the world over from war, crazy energy prices, rent hikes, just general doom and gloom. I was wondering, like, is this the test for crypto? And I think that, I mean, you... Christy and Adam, you can all like beat me at talking about this, but Bitcoin was literally born out of the last recession just after 2008, and it has grown into something really interesting and diverse in its applications. You know, this, the initial crash this year has exposed some bigger flaws in the system, but everyone, I feel like, should be watching uh, what crypto does at this time, you know, just based on the news of a recession. Is this the big test? We've seen how Bitcoin adoption kind of picks up in individual countries that have suffered sustained kind of economic troubles in Latin America, in Africa. This time, sadly for all, all of us, maybe you know, in a good way for crypto, there is a much larger testing ground with a lot more people and maybe a lot more incentive. So it's bad news and yes, there's an election element to it, but I'm also interested to hear what you guys think about how all this plays into crypto and going forward,:
0: This is a really interesting moment that we're in right now uh, with the Federal Reserve. With uh, monetary policy in the United States, you know, my thesis for a while since we started seeing this tightening happen, was that it would be politically untenable for them to continue beyond basically the end of August, because at that point, you're fully into you know the midterm election season here in the United States. And just again, for a White House that has exercised so much power over its various executive offices, It seems really far fetched that the Fed's going to be like, all right, Joe Biden, you're going to be the president for another two years, but we're really going to make it so that you hurt going into this uh, this midterm election. That just seems like the political realities of it don't really allow for that type of thing. And so that has been my sort of baseline case was that we would get as intense correction as possible as the Fed could pull off, you know, over the course of the couple of months. And then as we get close to September, things would start to taper off. And I think that ironically, we've seen that happen significantly earlier than I thought that we would. Now, personally, I don't think that the worst is over. And to be clear, like we're definitely in a recession. Again, like whenever you're talking about these numbers, you have to, re- you have to keep in mind, you're talking about the government's official numbers that it uses to judge its own performance for the public, which means that they are almost always going to pick whatever the best way to look at any given data is. So when we're talking about, well, the, the economy isn't in recession because the jobs market is robust. Well, we talked about these numbers on the show a couple of weeks ago when they came out. And the numbers, although they looked robust, they looked like it added hundreds of thousands of jobs. In reality, they added jobs, but people who had jobs went down. The number of people who held full-time jobs went down by hundreds of thousands. The number of people who held part-time jobs went down by hundreds of thousands. The only thing that went up was the number of people who were holding multiple jobs with the number of people who are working full-time hours at multiple jobs, reaching an all-time record high. So again, when you look at the top-line data, you can find some bright notes. But if you actually dig into what how you get to that data, you see that they're presenting it to you, not just in the best light possible, but in a light that is fundamentally misleading. And then they're using that as a way to justify uh, you know, whatever it is that they already wanted to do. So, I mean, this is not even a political issue. This is a systemic issue, and it's a systemic issue that stretches across both parties, uh, both administrations, you know, going back through most of my lifetime uh, in the United States. So this is not a short-term issue, but it is an issue that, again, as far as the impact on cryptocurrency, well, what it means is that the Fed remains trapped. The Fed can't raise interest rates high enough to tamp down inflation without basically causing a sovereign uh, default issue or a sovereign debt issue for the United States and for much of the countries around the world. So, there is no alternative but to return for the Federal Reserve to the supportive monetary policy stuff that has caused all of these bubbles and all of the dynamics that we've seen behind cryptocurrency markets for so many years. So again, it's, it's a lot less about what is real, and it's a lot more about what are the options, and there aren't any options. All of the options are worse than what the Fed will eventually do, which is return to accommodative policies, in my opinion. <laughs> Christy, what do you think? <laughs>
1: Well, I'm not going to speak too much about the American numbers, but I am happy to talk a little bit about perhaps the Bitcoin narrative in all of this. And I think that one of the things that we're talking about is, you know, is this a test for crypto? And I think that my response to that in many ways goes back to is this a moment for crypto when we were talking about privacy of transactions? And I just think that we're still too early to really hold much to take a whole lot away from what we're looking at right now in terms of Bitcoin's price go up, price go down numbers. It is a store of value considered by many to be a store of value and people are looking at, oh, it went down from its high by whatever, 75% or whatever it was. And yet and yet, the problem with looking at it that way as not being a store of value is first, you're looking at it on a very short timeframe. And second, you're also dealing with people who invested in Bitcoin as a number go up and then freaked out when number went down, not thinking long term. I mean, even take a look at what happened with Tesla. They needed cash on their books. So they liquidated 75% of their Bitcoin, not because it's a bad asset to hold. But if you need cash to pay your rent or you need cash to have your numbers on your Tesla books look good. If you need cash for whatever it is that you're doing until there's, you know, the so-called hyper Bitcoinization and you can pay for everything with Bitcoin, you need money, you need cash. And sometimes that means either you have to liquidate some of your Bitcoin in order to fulfill those obligations, or it's so early and we're dealing with people who are not looking at the right time frame that they panic sell when the numbers go down. It's still up, though, from the last full run bear market. I think we need another couple cycles before we can really judge it as a store value.
3: It's earnings season, and we are continuing to hear about how companies are faring in these very turbulent times. Today, we're talking about Meta's Q2 earnings report and earnings call. Meta, formerly known as Facebook, of course, just disclosed that its division working on tech and hardware for the metaverse suffered losses of $2.8 billion this quarter which brings the total losses this year to around $5.77 billion. The metaverse division, which is called Reality Labs, brought in $452 million in comparison in revenue this quarter, down around 35% from last quarter. This is after it reported over $10 billion in total losses last year. This is all very bleak, guys, hang with me. <laughs> but based on where it's at now, this year's losses, are set to surpass last year's losses. Again, this sounds pretty bleak, but Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg said this during the company earnings call. I think we have a little snippet of it. He said, this is obviously a very expensive undertaking over the next several years, but as the metaverse becomes more important in every part of how we live, I'm confident that we're going to be glad that we played an important role in building this. So it's a very optimistic outlook, given the numbers. So I'm going to first toss it to Will for your thoughts on what he said and what all of this means.
2: Yeah, that photo of Zuck there kind of feels like he's trying to invite us into his robotic world, right? And I don't know if I want to go myself. I will say from like an entrepreneur's standpoint or like a technological standpoint, it makes sense that this is all falling apart right now. And that's part of the game, right? Look at the same thing happened in the 90s with the dot-com bust. Everyone was building all these websites. Everyone was buying whatever URL they could, just thinking that within that, you'd have your own business, right? And of course, it collapsed. But out of that came a lot of big winners that are still around with us today. Amazon's always the one people like to talk about, but there's many others, of course. And Facebook could be doing the same thing here, right? They're trying to pivot and move into the metaverse landscape with the hopes that in 10 years, 15 years, This is their product. And so right now, they're willing to spend the R&D. They're willing to spend the money on this to get themselves to this place. The question, of course, is do people want this? And will people want this in 10 to 15 years? And with the trajectory of people being constantly on their phones, constantly on Twitter, constantly on whatever social media app, it's a pretty good bet. It really is. And there's a lot of people who are using these things immersively right now. So why not in 10 to 15 years more so, right? You'd have to have some sort of reactionary or cooling period against technology for the bet not to work out, or it's entirely the wrong tech stack and we don't know what is next. But for Facebook, be undergoing this and spending this amount of money on it, shows a high level conviction that is actually appropriate for a founder led company that is this large. It's actually pretty impressive. It is difficult to move these large behemoths once they get going. These corporations really just, they keep plowing ahead with what they're good at. And so to see that there's like the the leadership and tenacity behind an idea and spending this much money quarter over quarter, and you have to speak to your investors and your shareholders and tell them that you're spending this amount of money and just burning that cash for what could be nothing and could be something in 10 to 15 years. That's a pretty impressive level of conviction in my mind. Adam, I'm going to throw this one over to you for your
0: take. I mean, I think it's an audacious bet, right? I mean, that's really what we're witnessing here. We're witnessing probably one of the highest stakes bets that I've ever seen. Uh, And that bet is on one side, that this is going to be a thing, and on the other side, that it's not going to be a thing, right? And so to that extent, we don't know if this is a boondoggle yet or just an incredibly like shrewd play. But it's worth noting that you know Facebook's other business, Facebook, has taken some pretty significant hits over the last number of years as a result of changes made to privacy laws, practices on like how Apple phones deal with this type of stuff. They used to make a lot of money off of a very stable ad revenue business mostly driven by mobile because you couldn't really avoid them, was harder to to avoid where to click. And now that's in large part gone away. And so they are looking for, okay, given our dominant position today, what is the thing that we should bet on in the future? Now, personally, the metaverse to me won't actually have much consumer viability until we see headset technology significantly improve from where it is. I remember watching a talk given some six or seven years ago by an executive at a company called Leap, that was talking about how in the future, at this point, he was saying three years in the future, now six or seven years ago, we would basically have like Ray-Ban type, uh, you know, sunglasses that just have this technology built into them. And it becomes, you know, as easy as putting on a pair of glasses. When that happens, then I think that suddenly we're going to see a lot of this stuff change. And there are other problems too, like how do you walk around in these types of things, right? Because it's that sort of disconnection from, you know, our physical bodies versus what our eyes see that cause many of the problems about that. So, I think there's a lot to be kind of said about this bet, but it's very much that. It's audacious. It probably won't work. But if it does, it'll wind up being one of the biggest coups in business history. In our next story, we're headed over to the United Kingdom, where an independent body tasked with reviewing and updating laws wants to extend property rules to cover crypto and non-fungible tokens, defining them as personal property. The paper recently released, which focuses on crypto assets that go beyond just currency use, also argues that existing property laws can't sufficiently accommodate digital assets owing to the, quote, many different features and unique qualities when compared to traditional assets. Continuing the quote, the law must therefore go further to acknowledge these unique features, which in turn would provide a strong legal foundation for the digital asset industry and for users, the commission said. The seemingly crypto-friendly proposal is aimed in part in helping the nation's government achieve its goal of turning the country into a global crypto hub, the commission also said in the statement. And whatever the commission does here, I just wanted to note that uh, Scotland and Ireland have their own legal system, so they actually would not be affected by this. But Christy, if you're into it, I'd like to get your take on this first. You know, In a world that's rapidly acclimating to crypto and NFTs, we're seeing all kinds of different regulatory approaches to it. Where does this proposal from the UK fit in in that context?
1: Well, I think it's kind of exciting that they're actually looking at these digital assets as property. And they're saying that you know it's the the firms that are transmitting the money or the funds that uh, have to be concerned about the whole money transmission side of things, you know, on a personal level, like from you to me to Sandali to Will, those are not considered money transmission actions, which is, you know, at least they're, they're getting that part right. My first light bulb question mark over my head was thinking about these transactions as data thinking of them also as data being speech as opposed to property and where that definition of crypto especially bitcoin can fall into that if if we're going to look at if we're going to define it as property in one context can we also define it as speech in another context but i think at the same time they've also made allowances for that and said you know nothing is going to fit in neatly into one box or the other, and that there will always be crossovers and uh, nuances that need to be negotiated and navigated along the way. Will, I saw your hand go up.
2: Yeah. My quick thought on this before I hand it off to Sundly is just, this reminds me of last bear market cycles, headlines that we'd see a lot popping up, where it just be like, let's check in on this very random regulatory scene and see what's happening with crypto. Because That happened a lot during the bear market because there's not all these huge fundraisers or tokens popping or funds collapsing. Uh, So we're a little bit of a different headline situation here. Uh, Last thought on it it is just interesting to see how the jurisdiction by jurisdiction rollout crypto regulation is going to occur, right? So we looked at here in the UK, there's so many different jurisdictions that they're going to have to individually work on cases for how crypto is defined. Now think about in a global context. Think of it in the United States. We have so many different states that it has to go through. If you're trying to become a money transmitter, you have to go state by state in order to get all the money transmission licenses. Go like to South America, go to Asia. If you want to become like the dominant player in this, very difficult. You need to have a lot of capital. And that's why firms like Binance or FTX are really chugging ahead. They're getting huge raises. and They're trying to make as many inroads as possible because you need to check all these boxes if you're going to become the exchange de facto for everyone to use. Sonali, up to you.
3: Thanks, Well. Yeah, I kind of want to touch on the bigger picture here about UK becoming a crypto hub. This proposal is very much a play for consumer protection as well, right? They're saying that if crypto is treated as property, then if somebody were to steal your property through a hack or something, you should be able to legally fight and claim your losses. So that's the kind of angle they're, they're going for. And the big thing here is that the Law Commission says the proposal is the UK government's big plans to become a crypto hub. And the government, just before the recent big shakeup with Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Finance Minister Rishi Sunak and others resigning, said it wants to be the destination for crypto globally. And last week, in kind of a big move, the UK financial regulators proposed rules to Parliament. To bring stable coins under the jurisdiction's payments law. This would not only legitimize stable coins as a means of payment, but it also signals to people that the ones that meet the set regulatory standards are safe to use. So the EU, by comparison, also just agreed on its set of stablecoin laws, which in part hopes to accomplish similar things, you know, around consumer protection and economic growth. But the message was delivered in a very different, more sort of like beware of digital currencies kind of tone. So the UK is really trying to sound crypto friendly. And don't get me wrong, regulators are still calling crypto kind of a train wreck based on you know what happened recently with, with the markets. And we don't know how far all these plans and proposals are going to go, especially with now the cabinet sort of all up in the air right now. But Instead of, you know, the European Central Bank every other day telling us what we already know about a potential digital euro that could work or could not work, that, you know, needs to be capped, needs to be this or that, not really getting anywhere. And instead, the UK is sort of pushing from what we're hearing so far for the safe use of private digital assets. And I don't know, I mean, it sounds pretty, you know, funny hearing individual stories like this, but the general messaging is, is definitely interesting and different from what we're hearing from the rest of the world. So that was my rant.
1: I think that any government that wants to be friendly toward crypto, you know, that sends a signal to the rest of the world that maybe they need to notice that and possibly look at it differently maybe it makes some of them dig in more. I don't know. But yeah, to Will's point, what he was saying about you know how everything is different all over the world and how people are going to have to eventually sort of settle on something that they can all agree on. At least we've got one voice in there that's representing two entities, Wales and, and England, uh, that is coming down on the let's all make nice with crypto and see what we can do. Adam, want to finish it off?
0: Yeah. So... There's one other thing I think that we can draw this back to, which is if you look at the United States, if you look at recent comments from Prime Minister Modi over in India, you know, if you look at uh, like from, you know, the ECB, IMF, et cetera, you'll notice one thing in common that they've all been talking about, which is they want a unified regulatory scheme that doesn't just uh, happen on a country by country or state by state basis, but happens across the world. And the reason why they want that is because They know that to the extent that they leave holes in that network, to the extent that there is a place where you could go that has less worse rules around the thing that you want to do. Well, if the money or the industry or the opportunity is big enough, then you're probably going to do that. So what they seek to do is eliminate any sort of competitive options that would allow you to escape the rules that they wish to put on you. And I think that that, that's the vision on the US side, right? This is how we keep control is we make it so that everybody agrees to our rules. Now there's no place to escape the system. But the problem is, is that people's interests don't align with that, right? Whether you're talking about El Salvador, you know, with their great Bitcoin experiment, or you're talking about, you know, like advisory body here coming out of the UK covering Wales, you know, in England, like you're looking at an ecosystem that doesn't have all the same interests as the US hegemonic, you know, like uh, dollar preserving kind of regime does. And so as a result of that, I, it seems very unlikely. It seems like a bit of a pie in the sky kind of desire to even want that. And so we continue to see this on the one side, individual jurisdictions make decisions that they think are best for them in the big picture and on the other side the you know uber allies on that side are doing everything they can to try and get everybody to agree to their sets of rules even though it's not to the benefit of many people so i like seeing that dynamic continue to play out it gives me a continued faith in our ability to look at reality and to make good decisions based on that and i think that that's a great note to end this story on who's got our last story today
1: i do and it's sports sports dance. Ah. So this week is Sports Week on Coindesk, and there are a pile of really great articles. And the one I wanted to pull out today is written by one of our new reporters, Margot Neishkerk, who wrote about women's sports leagues and crypto. Is this an overlooked investment opportunity? And I think by the end of the article, we can probably come to the conclusion that it's heck yeah, and there should be way more investment in women's sports sponsorship opportunities. And here's why. So in 2020, women's sports globally received less than a billion dollars in sponsorship. That's compared to 467 billion that went toward men's and mixed sports, including Olympic and Grand Slam events. Now, the thing is you think, okay, well, maybe there's just not as much engagement from fans of women's sports. No, not true. According to a Nielsen report, sponsorships in women's sports have gone up by 146% since 2018. And the thing is that fans of women's sports are 25% more likely to buy sponsored products than fans of men's sports. Also, women have a fierce loyalty to their favorite athletes and teams and tend to buy more gear that way. They also have an outsized uh, influence on decision making and how things are spent in the home. So there's a lot of good reasons to cater to women's sports and their fan base, which is, again, often largely female. But when it comes to crypto, sports fans are twice as likely as non-sports fans to have knowledge about Bitcoin and or Ethereum and other crypto and are three times as likely to say they're very familiar with the workings of the crypto ecosystem. Overall, 47% of respondents to a poll by Morning Consult, uh, these respondents who are sports fans, said they're very familiar with crypto compared to just 39% of US adults and 23% of non sports fans. So, this is a niche audience that has a loyal fan base and a better than average understanding of crypto when you look at that small niche. So, why not have more sponsorship? Why not? go after the female sports figures who have some prominence and have some say uh, on social media and could be good promoters of the brand. We've got a few. There's Naomi Osaka, who is a tennis player sponsored by FTX. Coinbase has been sponsoring the Seattle uh, Seattle, uh, women's basketball team, but there's like, you can almost count it on one hand what we're looking at here. So suddenly other female in the room, what have you got to say about it?
3: No, this is such a cool piece. It's super interesting. And it talks about an unexpected market that, you know, people are taking advantage of, but, you know, could be doing better. And my first question was, and it made me kind of curious what percentage of women sports fans are actually women? Because I wanted to see if these like crypto savvy women sports fans are actually women or, you know, more men. So I did a quick search and, um, I I found that across a few countries like the US, UK, Italy, and Germany, you know, where they have huge, like, international sports fan bases, 51% of women's sports fans are male. So there's a pretty good balance there. But yeah, I'd like to know if this is actually promoting crypto engagement among women as well, or if it's more skewed towards men. But, like, overall, a really cool piece and something we can definitely look more into and kind of explore, and this is, like, my personal... (laughs) thing. But I I think that women's engagement in crypto is still very low and it could be better. They could be, you know, uh, engaged more in leadership roles. And there are so many initiatives around the world to make that happen. And it's really great to see that women's sport is kind of taking center stage and could be one of those drivers if uh, more, as you said, investment and interest came into it. Well, I saw your hand go up.
2: Yeah, the numbers on this one were the coolest to me. That 25% number that you just threw out there, Christy, was really, really interesting. of course, women's sports makes up like a smaller percentage of the number of sports fans out there. The fact that there's like an outsized influence within it is really important. And it actually looks like a really good investment opportunity if people are purchasing uh, those uh, things that much. That'd be a pretty smart thing to throw money at. Not financial advice, of course. But the other thing that was interesting about this was like the crypto engagement across. Uh, teams and sports. So like people who really enjoy sports happen to know more about crypto and happen to be more engaged with crypto. And it seems to be vice versa as well, which makes sense on an intuitive level, right? A lot of people are in sports, are also into gambling. They're also into gamification of things. They typically are playing like FIFA, things like that. And there's a lot of crossovers between those two worlds. So I'd expect these numbers to continue. But for me, the story is just awesome to see like those statistics pulled out and to just put them in context of the wider world of crypto and sports. Adam, to you before we close.
0: I'll keep it very quick. Seems like a perfect opportunity for Sam Bankman fried to deploy one of his millions and effectively double the industry while getting significantly more bang for his buck based on this conversation (laughs) that I think that he's been getting from his other sponsorships. Back to you, Will.
2: (laughs) SPF, if you're watching this, you know where to throw the next wad of cash. Well, that is the hash for the, the day. I'm Will Foxley. That's Adam B. Levine with the hot take on where SBF should dump some money. Christy Harkin up in We Canada and Sandali Hagaama. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate all your time. If you were listening to this, the hash for your ears is a thing. Thanks for listening. There's also more podcasts you can check out on the Coindesk Podcast Network. For us, the hash, I think that's that's it, right? We got tomorrow though, Friday. Friday light is done. Friday is tomorrow. See you guys later.
0: See you next time.
1: You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.